Are you ready for the word? I said, are you ready for the word? Then let's turn to the book of Luke. I like that enthusiasm. Book of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to take a second pass at the same section of Scripture we dealt with last week. Uh, In fact, we're going to be hovering on this thing for a couple more weeks because I want to use this as a launching pad, uh, sort of, to talk about a very important topic, uh, which is the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in the kingdom. You know, the, the Bible, the Scripture has a sort of fractal quality to it, which means the whole is represented in the part and the part in the whole. And that's why you can, as you're going through uh, the Word, you can really launch off into a lot of directions and you cover the whole orb of Christian life. And no matter where you start, you're going to cover it all because it's got that fractal quality to it. So we're using this as a launching pad to talking about the Holy Spirit, a very important topic. Uh, And I'll just read here two verses from Luke chapter 1, and we'll be getting to a lot of other verses later on. Uh, Verses 39 and 40. And I want to entitle this message, The Dancing Spirit. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Uh, she's leaving Jerusalem. It's about a 70-mile journey, about a three- to five-day journey. And this 14-year-old sets off. Where, there she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Now remember, uh, John the Baptist was already filled with the Holy Spirit even in the womb. So John the Baptist sort of has his homing device on and uh, uh, Jesus in in Mary's womb comes in the vicinity and so he just leaps for joy. And when that happened, when John the Baptist who was filled with the Holy Spirit leaped for joy, then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then she prophesied. I want to hover on this whole uh, teaching of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to pray for this message, kind of get some people around the auditorium who will keep the message covered in prayer as I'm preaching it. Okay, thanks. Holy Spirit, we're talking about you this morning and the next couple weeks. And we know that that would be utterly fruitless unless you, Holy Spirit, are present in the talking. And if you're present in the listening and present in the receiving. And so, Lord, just have your way here. Anoint this message. I pray, Lord God, that this message would be used by you to increase our understanding of, appreciation of, and adoration of the triune God, and more specifically, the Holy Spirit. And Lord, build your kingdom in our minds and build your kingdom in our hearts as your word goes forth. Let it not return void. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. 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 As I said, we're going to be starting this series now on the Holy Spirit. And there are, there are some messages where I am um, more kind of reminding us of stuff most of us already know uh, and kind of motivating us to get more involved in it. And then there are other messages that are less motivational but more instructive, more teaching. Here we, we kind of take on, put on more of a professor's hat and turn this into a classroom and get into the, some deeper things in the Word. And this message here is definitely in that category. So I'm going to be asking you to put on your thinking caps as we're going to be wrestling with some stuff that is profoundly important, but also is, is at, it, it can be challenging. Now the background to this talk is this. In the Old Testament, 
Uh, we read a little bit about the Holy Spirit, but not that much. I mean, he, the Holy Spirit didn't start existing in the New Testament. He's present throughout the Old Testament. In fact, we find him uh, in, in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. He's there in creation. But he only begins to take a, a central stage importance uh, in the New Testament. Uh, with the New Testament, something radically different happens. In fact, I could say the kingdom revolution that Jesus came to bring is really a spirit-inspired revolution. It's a revolution of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of the Spirit, where the Holy Spirit reigns. So we're talking about something very important here. You see something of the importance of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament when John the Baptist is preaching out in the River Jordan, and uh, some people mistakenly think he, that he might be the Messiah. And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Uh, there's one who's coming, he says in Luke 3.16, there's one who's coming who is more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you, not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now this is the first thing that John the Baptist says about Jesus. Uh, his trademark will be this. In the revolution that he's beginning... Uh, people are going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. That's what the word baptized means. They'll be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit filled some people in the Old Testament here and there, and we read about them moving here and there. But in this new revolution, the Spirit of God's going to be poured out, and it's going to be filling people, and it's going to be immersing people, and, and the presence of God is going to be there. So one of, the, one of the distinctive things that Jesus brings is this new kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says, a little bit later on, as the kingdom is growing, he says to the Roman Christians in, in Romans 14, now they're having this fight over kind of what you can eat and what you can drink, you know, and some people think you can drink this and but not that and eat this but not that, and they're having this squabble. Back in those days, people used to be petty. It's hard to believe, but they were. And um, Paul says, you guys, the kingdom of God isn't about these details, these technical rules, uh, you know, what can you eat, what can you drink, and whatever. The kingdom of God it's about righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. It's about people who are going to be walking in the Spirit, and so the righteousness of the Holy Spirit's going to be present, and the joy of the Holy Spirit's going to be present, and the peace of the Holy Spirit's going to be present. That's what the kingdom of God is about. So when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about something that is really central to this kingdom revolution that all who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ are a part of. It is a spirit revolution. The first question we've got to ask is, who is the Holy Spirit? We often talk about the Holy Spirit, and some people get some weird ideas about that. So we've, we've got to talk about who is the Holy Spirit. And the knee-jerk Nicene response would be to say that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. But what does that mean? Uh, what is the Trinity? So we, we need to lay the groundwork by talking about the Trinity. I told you this is going to be a little theological. It's going to be a little thick, but hang with me because this is going to be very important. We're going to talk about the Trinity. The Trinity is not specifically mentioned in the Bible. But it is our way of bringing together a multitude of different biblical facts, indisputable biblical facts, and the Trinity is our way of kind of bringing these all together. More specifically, there's five biblical facts that when we bring them together uh, uh, inspire us to believe that God is one God in three persons and the Holy Spirit is the third person in this Trinity. Here are the five biblical facts. First of all, the Father throughout the Bible is called God. The Father is God. Secondly, 
The Son throughout the New Testament is called God. In fact, even in the Old Testament, uh, in, in a prophetic way, he's, he's, he's uh, diagnosed as being God. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, for example. Um, in John 1, 1, it says, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's referring to Jesus Christ. John 20, 28. Thomas says to him, My Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5. Paul says he's God over all, blessed forever, amen. Titus 2.13, he's called our great God and Savior. Throughout the New Testament, he's given divine attributes. And throughout the New Testament, he's worshiped as God. So the Father is God, but the Son also is God. Third biblical fact is that the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit and God are used interchangeably. For example, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, one verse says that they sinned against God, and then a few verses later it says they sinned against the Holy Spirit. The two are used interchangeably. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Fourth biblical fact. These three relate together. They communicate with one another. They interact. They have affection for one another. Now that's important because there are some folks who believe that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are simply three different roles that God plays, three different hats he puts on, or three different masks that he wears. No, but clearly these, these aren't just roles that God plays. These are, these are, this is something God is. There's interaction between these three. And the fifth biblical fact is that there's only one God. Throughout the Bible, there's not three gods, there's only one God. Throughout the Bible, you have this hammered home over and over again. There's one God. Put all that together and you get what we call the Trinity. Now, we say there's one person and three gods. Now, if you ask me, how is that possible? Well, there's, no, there's... <laughs> Call myself. There's one person and three gods. No, there's... <laughs> I have a PhD in theology. Um, <laughs> There is one God and three persons, three persons and one God. Okay, so you ask, how is that possible? And my answer is, I don't know. And I paid a lot of money for a degree to say that. But look at here's what I do know. This mystery of three and one, one and three, is really not that unique. In fact, it's not unique at all. Uh, everything that exists manifests the mystery of the Trinity. It manifests this one in many and many in one. In fact, I, I argued in the first book I ever wrote back in 1992, was a book called Trinity in Process, A Critical Evaluation and Reappropriation of Hartshorn's Dipolar Theism Towards a Trinitarian Metaphysics. And I don't know why you guys haven't read that one yet. Golly, I thought you liked me. I think in, around the whole globe, there's seven people who read it and six of them didn't like it. Okay, but, but in that book... In that book, I, I, uh, one of the main things I argued was this. The concept, of a, the concept of an absolutely undifferentiated unity containing no internal relationships is utterly unintelligible. All right? <laughs> it's true. You try to get in your mind a concept of an utterly undifferentiated unity, something that has no relationship within itself or to, to anything else, and that is equivalent to nothingness. Um, Hegel said it's, that conception is like a, a polar bear in a snowstorm without a black nose. Uh, it, it's nothingness. Okay, that analogy didn't work very well. Uh, Hegel said... It, it, 
Hegel said that it's, uh, the concept to be is to be related. The concept of being and the concept of relationality uh, are, are overlapping concepts. You can't have one without the other. Everything that exists exemplifies a unity amidst diversity, a diversity amidst unity. Everything exists as a unified nexus of relationship or a unified tapestry, collection of relationships. To be is to be related. So everything reveals in some way the mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity is not unique. It attaches to everything that exists. For example, I'm one person. I'm one person. And yet, I've got, I, my, my, the unity of my personhood consists of a multiplicity of other things. I've got billions of selves. What it is for me to exist as, as one person is to be an ordered relationship among these selves. If you were to break it down in terms of quantum particles, you'd multiply it a billion times more than that. What it is for me to be me is to have this relationship between all these quantum particles that make up all these cells. What it is for me to be me is to have this particular way of organs relating together. That's what makes me the one person that I am. I am a unity, but I'm a unity precisely because on another level, I'm also a diversity. Uh, consider this, I'm one person, and yet who I am is inseparable from my relationship with God, from my relationship with my wife, from my relationship with my kids, from my relationship with my friends. You can't abstract me out of that. Part of who I am is that relationship with others. Okay, so relationality is built into, into my, my unity. Think about this, I've got one brain um, and one mind, and yet I find that whenever I think, I'm talking. I'm talking to myself. Someone's talking and someone's listening. Try it sometime. Think a thought. Someone's talking and someone's listening. There's internal relationality there. I'm one self, and yet I've got a self, and I've got a self-image, a way that I see myself, and I relate to that self-image. I either like it or I don't like it or whatever. So I'm one self, and yet there's internal relationship within me. If it was not for this uh, relationship, I wouldn't be the one self that I am. I'm one person, and yet I've got a physical side to me, I've got a psychological side to me, and I've got a volitional side to me, uh, what the Bible calls uh, body, soul, and spirit. I've got these three different dimensions to me. Um, in that way, I, we image God. I'm one person, and yet I've got this threefoldness to my being. Are, are you starting to pick up what I'm talking about? Everything that exists, point to anything that exists, and you'll see that it's one thing, and yet it's one thing precisely because it, it is a ordered way of, 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 of things relating together. It always involves a multiplicity. Maybe even a better analogy would be this. Uh, when you get married, if it's a good marriage, it's not just about one person and one person, one plus one. Rather, when two people come together in marriage, if it's a good marriage, there is a new unity that is created. The, the two people keep their individuality and yet they create a new thing. Instead of just me and me, it, there's an us. And the us is a new thing. It's a new world. It's a new reality. It, 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 it defines the individuals. God is like that. God is like that. The love between two people in a marriage creates a new unity. If they have children, the unity expands. They bring another in on their, their loving unity. So also God, the triune God, we could define as, as he exists as a perfect, unified, threefold nexus of perfect loving relationships. God is God precisely because he's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm probably right now boring you to death, but it's going to get better, so just hang with me here. Um, that seems like maybe just abstract theology, but in fact, it has incredible ramifications 
uh, in our understanding of God and the world and ourselves and everything else. Certainly has incredible ramifications, as we'll see here in a, in a little bit, for our understanding of the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why the church throughout history has always seen the Trinity as being sort of the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. It really informs everything else. Consider one aspect of this. Love requires relationship. You can't have love without an I and, an, and a thou. An utterly undifferentiated, unified God, which we couldn't conceive because you can't conceive of that, an, an utterly undifferentiated unity, that's equivalent to nothingness. But if you could conceive of an uh, utterly un, undifferentiated God, that God would have no I and thou. Therefore, that God could not love. A God who existed as a monad in the solitude of space before creation couldn't be a loving God. That God, which is pretty close to what Judaism and Islam, uh, the, their view of God, that, that view of God, would, he would have to create in order to be loving. He'd have to create something other than himself in order to have any relationship and therefore in order to have any kind of love. Only the Christian view that God as the one God that he is involves an I and a thou. It, it, he, his being consists of a multiplicity of relationships. Only the Christian view is able to say that God is loving in and of himself. God is love in and of himself. Eternally, apart from the world, God is perfect, unsurpassable love. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, I think the most profound verse in the Bible, God is love. Now we hear that so much, maybe we don't see how radical it is, but, but it's radical. It's not just saying God loves, which would be nice, but it's not just that God loves, God is love. Love for God is not just a verb he does. Love for God is the noun that he is. And he can be that because his own being consists of relationships that are perfect love, perfectly loving. So in the Christian view, God doesn't create the world in order to have something to love. Rather, God creates because he's love. He creates out of his love. He creates you out of his love, the love that he is. He sustains you out of love. He guides you out of love. He blesses you out of love. He saves you out of love. And if he punishes you, he punishes you out of love because he loves you so much. Everything he does, he does as himself, and he is love. Not just a verb he does, but the noun of love, that's who he is. So if you ever wonder whether God loves you or not, you need to ask yourself this very important question. Do you exist? Now, if you answer no to that question, your problems go deeper than your theology. <laughs> but if you answer, yes, I, I exist, read a little Descartes, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Okay, <laughs> poor Descartes. He had to actually come up with that proof to be assured that he existed. But, but uh, if you exist, that means that God's holding you in existence, and that's your proof that God loves you because you, everything he does, he does out of love. Oh, you just took another breath. God must love you. <laughs> oh, someone had a thought over here. God must love them. Uh, you're, you're, you're watching me preach right now. God must love you. Our being is sustained by God and everything God does, he does out of love because God is love. The love, the love by which he creates us and sustains us and guides us and blesses us and even punishes us, that love is God himself and therefore it's perfect. See, we, we human beings, we love as a verb for the most part. The goal of life, by the way, 
is to love as a noun, to be a loving person, to, for that to be who you are. But for us to get there, we have to choose to love, so we love as a verb. And because we love as a verb, sometimes we love well and other times we don't love well. We love some people more than other people. We love on some days better than other days. Uh, you know, our love tends to be somewhat conditional. God's love isn't like that. Because God, God loves by simply being himself, which means his love is always perfect. It's not like with human beings. God doesn't have like, like a, a gradation scale of love. Best love, good love, adequate love, semi-adequate love, bad love, hatred. You know, we have scales like that, and people get slotted into different categories. But see, God, God is himself. He can't not be himself. He is himself, and there's only one kind of love that he does, and that love is himself. It's perfect love. It's perfect love. That's why, that's why Jesus prays in the, the prayer in John 17. Among the prayers says, you've loved them even as you've loved me. You've loved them even as you love me. Now, now, Jesus and the Father go back a long ways. They've had this love, this God-defining love throughout eternity. And now Jesus is saying, that same love that God had throughout eternity, now it's being tur turned towards uh, these people. Uh, God loves by being himself. We often insult God by doubting that. We often attribute to God... Uh, uh, a, a, a weak love, a petty love, an imperfect love, a capricious love, a fickle love, a, a, a human kind of love. We think that God loves some people more than other people and that God loves us some days better than other days. We think that God's love is conditional. And if you're at all prone towards that sort of doubt, I want to just right here encourage you, have faith in the Trinity. Have faith in the triune God. Have confidence in God's love. His nature, his eternal nature, not just what he does, but his very nature throughout eternity is always Calvary-like. Calvary reveals who God is, not just what God does, but it reveals who God is. It reveals what God does only because it reveals who God is, and God always does who he is. Ooh, that was good. God is perfect, tri he's the perfect triune God who never loves less than perfectly, unsurpassably, and never does he not love. So you can know that if you're listening to me right now, you can know if you exist that you couldn't be more loved than you are right now because God is love, perfect love, and his face is turned towards you. He's holding you in existence. He may be ticked off at what you do. He may be grieved by what you do. He may be angered by what you do. He may punish you to discipline you, to guide you. But you got to know that he does that only because he loves you so much. The heat of his anger is simply the heat of his love going towards you because he sees that what you're involved in is damaging to you and damaging to other people. And he loves you and he loves other people. But God is love. Everything he does is out of love. God exists as the perfect love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is the third person of this, this triune God. And so let's talk about him. Uh, when, when God relates to the world, his, his inner being be, is, is put on display. Uh, he, he, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout eternity. When he turns to the world, each person takes on a different role. Each person within the Trinity takes on a different role. And I can paint with very broad strokes the, the biblical pattern of talking about things, at least the New Testament pattern of talking about things this way. The Father tends to be God above us, God transcendent, God in God's infinitude. The Son is God incarnate or God among us or God revealed. 
This is why all of our attention, when we think about God, we should have it focused on Jesus Christ because this is the skin of God, if you will, the manifestation of God. So the Father is God above. The Son is God among us. The Holy Spirit, his specific role is God within us or God imminent. So we have God above, God among, and God within. What God, whatever God does towards us has this, this, uh, this flow to it. Everything comes from the Father above comes through the Son among us, the incarnate revealed God, and is consummated in the Holy Spirit. The Cappadocians were the first to really hammer this out and catch this biblical pattern. They're fourth century theologians. Everything comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. It's consummated in the Holy Spirit. Every movement of God towards us is from the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Every movement we make towards God is the reverse of that. It begins by the Spirit, goes through the Son, and is, is brought to the Father. So God comes to us from the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit. We go to God by the Holy Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, that through Him, referring to the Son, through Him, we both... And now Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles, which involves then, by implication, all ethnic groups. All of us through the Son, have access to the Father by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Holy Spirit. This diagram that I have here, and if you're listening by radio or internet, uh, you're going to be a little handicapped here because I'm pointing to a diagram. But the, the, this flow chart here is, is one way of thinking about God's relationship with us. Uh, everything, the, the stream of God's love comes from the Father, through the Son, and then in the Spirit gets us. God's working inside of us, in our heart, in our minds to help us understand. That's why the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. He, he grabs us and then brings us to the Son and reconciles us with the Father. I picture that flow there sort of like a river, a river that flows in a figure eight pattern. The stream of God's love or the river of God's love flows from the Father through the Son. It grabs us in the Holy Spirit. We get caught up in that stream. The stream brings us then to the Son and, and ultimately to the Father. We go through the Son to the Father. Picture yourself as a popsicle stick caught up on a stream. God comes down to us through the Son, grabs us in the Holy Spirit, brings us through the Son to himself. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. And the Holy Spirit is the place where, where the point of contact, where God's working in us to bring all the movement of God to us, to consummation in our life, and then bring us back to God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now, yeah, it's good stuff. I like theology. Okay, it's about to get a little bit thicker, so keep your hats on. I want to bring three points. By hats, I mean thinking hats here. Um, thinking caps. Uh, three points I want to make uh, out of this, okay? Point number one. If you understand the triune God and you understand what salvation is about, you'll see that salvation is a matter of us sharing in the life of the Trinity by the power of the Spirit. Salvation is us sharing in the life of the Trinity by the power of the Spirit. That's why it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, God has given us his very great and precious promises so that, look at this verse, through them, we might participate in the divine nature. Uh, we don't ourselves become divine, but we participate in the divine nature, and the divine nature is what we just described. Uh, God is love. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. We participate in the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now really have your thinking caps on as I say this. 
The movement from God to us and us to God, that flowing uh, river that I just described, the movement from God to us and us to God is the eternal movement of, within God's own being. It's not a secondary thing. It's God's own movement, which is just another way of saying that, God is, that God's love for us is something he is before it's something he does. Salvation is something by, by which we participate in the inner life of God. Let, let me give an analogy here. If I'm walking down the street and I see a guy who's, you know, some stranger who is, uh, his car's broken down, his, his tire's flat, he needs to change his tire. And, and he, he asked me, the stranger asked me to help him change the tire. And what, you know it's a stranger because anyone who knew me would never ask me to fix anything. But, <laughs> but this guy doesn't know any better, so he says, you know, will you come help me uh, change my tire? Now, I, I'll do that because I'm a nice guy, you know, but, but that's something I do. That's a verb for me, Okay. That activity is a verb. On the other hand, my relationship to my wife is not primarily a verb. It's not something I do. It's rather something I am. Um, now, of course, there's things you do. I've got the honey-do list like everyone else does. Uh, there's things you do. But you do those because you are something. If it's a good marriage, marriage isn't just something you do. It's something you are. Your relationship to your spouse should be part of your being. That's why it's not something you can turn on and off. It, it, it's part, it defines you. Uh, my relationship to my wife is something I am. She's on the inside of me. Uh, you know that I, I talked about how I have one mind and yet I have a self and I have a self-image and a relationship to that self-image. There's internal relationality uh, within me. Well, she's on the inside of that internal rela relationality. Uh, the way I relate to myself now involves her. She's on the inside of my self-relationship. She is wedged, if you will. She's wedged into the way I love myself and the way I enjoy myself and the way I delight in myself. And if I'm discouraged in the way that I am discouraged with myself, she's wedged in that. She's, she's on the inside of me. She's in my head. She's in my heart. She's under my skin. And vice versa. In other words, the way to have a, to have a marriage, that, this is why it, it's so, marriage is such a good model of, of who God is. In a good marriage, according to God's design, who I am involves her and who she is involves me. She's, she's part of the way I do me, even in my head, in my, my, in my life. You see, so our relationship is not just something external to us, it's something that's on the inside of us. The way I do me involves her. So it is with God in his relationship with us. In Christ, through the Holy Spirit, caught up in this stream, we get wedged into the way God does God. We get incorporated into the way that God does God. We get wedged into the loving relationship of the Trinity. We become participants in the divine nature. Now, we don't become God any more than my wife becomes me or I become her. It's beautiful precisely because the distinction is preserved. But we participate in God's way of doing God. That's why the Bible describes this God's saving relationship with us as being a marriage. Because the way God does God now involves us. And if, we, if, we, if we're growing in it, the way we do us now centrally involves him. That is the biblical concept of salvation. There are some real campy, shallow, pervasive ideas of salvation out there. Uh, some people see God as a lawyer. God's primarily a lawyer, so salvation is sort of a legal deal that we cut to waive the penalty for sin. Others see God primarily as a salesman, and, and what we need to buy is our fire insurance, and so you say certain prayers and do certain deeds to buy the fire insurance. Some people see God as sort of this ornery theology professor, and, 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 and so salvation is a matter of, of passing the test. 
You know, when you get to the pearly gates, uh, you'll be giving a, a test. And, and if you get all the doctrine just right, boom, you're in. But if you get the doctrine wrong, uh, you know, God will say, hey, I loved you and I died for you. And I know you love me, but your doctrine was wrong. You're out of here. Go to hell. Uh, some people hold that. You're damned. You got into the wrong teacher, went to the wrong church, born in the wrong place or, or something like that. Some people see God as this genie. And, and salvation's a matter of rubbing the bottle and, and getting the right formula and praying the right prayers and confessing the right things and then God will save you and God will bless you and give you the new car. God's kind of the genie in the, in, in the bottle. And salvation's a matter of knowing the magical formula. And other people see, people, other people see God as an employer. And salvation's a matter of, of impressing the boss and, and, and getting a raise. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God, God is not a lawyer, God's not a salesman, God's not a professor, God's not a genie, and God's not an employer. God is your lover. God is your lover. And what salvation is, is getting on the inside of the lover and letting the lover get on the inside of you. God, God, God is, is, is saying to us, the triune God is saying, I want you to dance with me. I want you to dance in me. Uh, I delight in myself and I want you to delight in my self-delight. Come participate in my self-delight. Come participate in my joy. Come participate in the unsurpassable love that has defined me throughout eternity. Come and dance with me. Come and dance in me. I want to do the way I do me as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to do that with you. I want you to be wedged into the whole thing. That's why the Bible describes us as being in Christ. We're in Christ and we're dancing with the triune God. And it couldn't be any more beautiful. You could not get anything more beautiful than that because God is the epitome of life. God is life itself, love itself, joy itself, beauty itself, peace itself. And to be dancing with God is to be on the inside of all of that throughout eternity. You know, Either life is, is, is unimaginably, either life is unimaginably beautiful or it's unimaginably sad and ugly. If you're here and, and, and your belief, the story that you live in is that there, there's no God or at least no personal God out there who loves us and life is just sort of this, this thing that we put up with for 70, 80 years uh, on, a good, uh, on a good stretch and uh, uh, we're just sort of complex protoplasm. We're carbon-based life forms, sort of just you know, evolved amoebas and we live and we have pain and we have joy and then we die and, and then finally the earth uh, gets sucked up into the sun as the sun goes into a supernova and it blows up and all suns blow up and the universe is going to die a cold heat death and then there's nothingness. If that's the story you live in, that's a very sad story because there's nothing that matters. There's nothing you achieve or hope for or dream of that's ever going to come to pass. In the end, death, darkness, uh, uh, win, win, win the day. In the meantime, there's just pain and absurdity. That's a very sad story. That's about the saddest story you can imagine. But if you see... If you believe in this God, this God who doesn't just love, but who is love, if you believe in this God, in this God and you live in this story, then this is the, 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 the most beautiful story that ever is told. It's the most beautiful story that ever could be told because it has as the final chapter, an unending chapter, whereby we're dancing with God and we're dancing in God and we're sharing in the joy and the delight of the triune God, who God is throughout eternity, and it couldn't get more beautiful than that. We're sharing in, we're on the inside of the one who is beauty itself, the epitome of beauty, the zenith of love and the zenith of joy, and we'll be dancing throughout eternity with that God. And that's about as good as you could possibly imagine. In fact, it's infinitely better than you could possibly imagine it. So, the, so you see, we're not just dealing with dry theology anymore. This is, this is really good stuff. First point is that salvation is a matter of, of, of dancing with God. It, it's being on the inside of the way God does God. Point number two. 
The one who leads us in this dance and who teaches us this dance is the Holy Spirit. I want us to see this. The Holy Spirit. Every step we've ever taken towards this dance and in this dance has been initiated by the Holy Spirit. We maybe thought we initiated it because we're not usually aware of the work of the Holy Spirit. He works behind the scenes and quietly in the depths of our heart and consciousness. But as a matter of fact, every step we've ever taken has been initiated by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we're dead in our sins. The Bible says that we're slaves to sin. And whatever else you make of those metaphors, it means this. Left to our own devices, we, we, devices we'd be corpses in relationship with God. We'd be perfectly happy worldlings who are just carbon-based life forms living out our, our short, paltry years here, and that'd be the end of it. We wouldn't on our own, because of the oppression of the devil and because of the, the power of sin and the fall, we wouldn't on our own be making motions towards God. God comes out from the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit and then grabs us and he begins to work in our heart. And so the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us alive. He resurrects us. We couldn't resurrect ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the one who removes the veil from our eyes and, and, and uh, frees us from the blinders of the enemy in 2 Corinthians 3. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our hearts so that we'll be open to the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspires faith in us to surrender our life to Jesus. Paul says that no one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who then produces fruit in our life. This isn't, uh, this isn't a, uh, you know, a... a self-effort, pop psychology sort of thing that we crank out good works on our own. The Holy Spirit's the one who's always working on us to produce fruit. And if we understand this, then two things quickly follow. Number one, if you understand the triune God and you understand the role of the Holy Spirit, the last thing in the world you should be ever tempted to do is to become self-righteous. You see the, the silliness of it, the foolishness of it. It's, it, it's, it's ludicrous. Uh, if you understand the triune God and the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation, you understand that if you believe, it's because the Holy Spirit's been working in your life. And if you love God, it's because the Holy Spirit's been working in your life. And if you've got any fruit being produced in your life, it's because the Holy Spirit's been working in your life. And if the Holy Spirit wasn't there, and if God's grace wasn't there, you'd be out there in the world, uh, just, just your ordinary worldling, enjoying the short little protoplasm existence that you have, and you would have no interest in God and no concern with God. Whatever we are before God, all that we are before God is to the glory of God because if it wasn't for God, the Holy Spirit working in our life, it wouldn't be there. Amen. So we can't be patting ourselves in the back very hard at all, nor can we be looking with judgmental eyes at any other person. All we are, we owe to God. We, there's no room for self-righteousness, but the second thing is there's no room, there's no room for anxiety. Not if you understand uh, the triune God and the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. People frequently feel abandoned by God, and, but once a year I talk to people who think they've committed the unforgivable sin. And as I talk with these folks, I just ask them this question. Are you concerned that God has abandoned you? Are you concerned you've committed the unforgivable sin? And they go, duh, that's why I'm talking to you. And then my response is, well, that, the fact that you're concerned about it proves that it hasn't happened because you wouldn't be concerned about it unless God hadn't abandoned you and unless you hadn't committed the unforgivable sin. If you've got any concern about God, any affection for God, if you're making any movement toward God, even in the sense of being worried, that's a result of the Holy Spirit operating in your life. No one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you don't have to worry about God abandoning you He's inside of you, and that's the only reason you believe Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you're concerned about sinning against the Holy Spirit, the fact that you're concerned with it shows that it doesn't apply to you. 
because you wouldn't be concerned if the Holy Spirit wasn't already active in your life. People who have uh, resolved their hearts against God and God has finally turned over, they're the last people in the, in the world who are ever worried about what God thinks about them or, or whether they've, they've sinned against God. The third point, and I close with this, is this. To understand the triune God and the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation, we realize that our main job as kingdom people is to yield, to yield to the Holy Spirit. That's, that's our business, is simply to yield to the Holy Spirit. There are people who believe that the Holy Spirit is, what they say, irresistible. And by that they mean this. They believe, rightly, that we could not believe without the work of the Holy Spirit. But then they go further and they assert that with the Holy Spirit, we must believe. You can't help but believe when the Holy Spirit's working in your life. He's irresistible. Now, one of the sad consequences of that is it means that, see, God just chooses whose heart he's going to turn. And if he decides he's going to turn your heart, it's going to get turned. You can't resist it. Which means that God turns some people's hearts, but not other people's hearts, which means that God loves some people more than other people and just chooses who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. And I submit to you, well, the minute you make that move, you get, you're dealing with a very different picture of God. And uh, there's some, some scary consequences to it. From a biblical perspective, God does everything he can do to save us, to woo us, to win us. Uh, he always takes the initiative, and we could not move towards God without him, but, he, but he, sta- he will not coerce us. He empowers us to be able to believe, but doesn't coerce us that we have to believe, which is why the Bible says we can resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen, he's talking to this hostile audience in Acts chapter 7, and he says this, and it got him stoned. Uh, he says, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Apparently, people can resist the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 4, Paul says, don't, he's talking to believers here, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Apparently, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can resist the Holy Spirit, and it grieves him. 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 5, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Apparently, we can put out the Spirit's fire. We can quench the Holy Spirit. God does everything possible to win us over, but he will not coerce us. Uh, He wants a bride. He wants a wife, but he doesn't want a Stepford wife. Uh, He he wants a wife who who, who chooses uh, in whatever capacity to say yes. A man courting a woman uh, would, uh, and it could work the other way around. I'm not trying to be, you know, politically incorrect here or anything, but, but let's just stick with a simple analogy. A man courting a woman could sacrifice job, reputation, house, homes, maybe his very life in order to show that he loves her and wants to win her over and to get her affection. He, he could do everything. But if he at some point puts a microchip in her brain that makes her love him, we're no longer dealing with love. That's not love at all. That's just manipulation. And God doesn't want to manipulate. There's no love in that. It's it's just not. So we can resist the Holy Spirit, which means this. The real issue is, are we yielding to the Holy Spirit? Are we yielding to the Holy Spirit? The question I, I leave us with is this. Who is in control of your life? Now, you maybe aren't aware of this, but even right now as I'm talking, and it's been going on all service, and will continue throughout the day, and in fact, it's been going on throughout your whole life, The creator of the universe who loves you with an everlasting love is working in your heart, trying to move you along. That stream, that figure eight stream that started with the Father, came through the Son, and now is grabbing you in the Holy Spirit. He's working. He's working. He wants to carry us along on the stream into the dance of God and and to grow us and to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ and to begin us to live, live in the kingdom. But for that to happen, 
we have to say yes. We have to say yes. Not just once upon a time, four weeks ago, four years ago, or 40 years ago, but right here and right now. And then when we leave, and moment by moment, are you yielded? The question is this, who is calling the shots in your life? Do you make your decisions, whatever they're about, simply on the basis of what you want, what you like, what you were taught, whatever? Or is there an openness in your heart that says, not my will, but yours be done? The Christian life isn't a matter of cranking out good works on our own, just with our self-effort and stamina. No. It's a matter of learning how to yield. So the Holy Spirit comes, and we become sort of the popsicle stick floating in the river of God's love. And now he carries us to new and beautiful and wonderful and glorious places. You can swim upstream if you want, but God's saying, don't do that. Let's dance. Let's dance. Let's dance. Some here maybe have never surrendered their life to Christ. You're not a kingdom person. You're on the outside of this thing still. I want to encourage you this morning, here and now, uh, as soon as I pray and we're dismissed, up here to my right and your left, there'll be a person here who would just love to explain to you what it means to become a Christian, what it means to become a kingdom person, and to start walking this walk. For the rest of us, I just want us to live in the question, who's calling the shots? Will you yield and go all the way with God? Would you close your eyes? Let's close with this prayer. Father, this moment, and I pray God every successive moment, Teach us to yield. Teach us how to live our life, not out of a center of our self-will, but Lord God, yield it to you as you lead us and guide us and grow us and transform us. As we leave this place, Lord God, I pray that we would be filled with you instead of being filled with ourself, filled with our agendas, filled with our aspirations and our wants and our desires. Lord, we want you to live your life through us. Holy Spirit, batter down the walls of resistance, the walls of self-will that keep us from flowing in that beautiful, infinite river of your love. Massage our hearts that we bend to you and become vessels by which you reveal yourself to the world. As we leave this place, help us to carry out and continue on the Holy Spirit revolution begun in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Go out and build the kingdom. The altar's open. If you have any needs that you would like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward. Our prayer team is, is here. God bless.